That was the scene of the first legal recreational cannabis purchase in New York last week. More than a year after the state voted to legalize marijuana for recreational adult use, its first licensed recreational dispensary is open for business. It's run by a nonprofit called Housing Works, which provides resources to unhoused New Yorkers and those living with AIDS. They're the first beneficiaries of the state's plan to give dispensary licenses to people who've been disproportionately impacted by drug laws. Nonprofits with a history of serving those currently or formerly incarcerated are also included in the law. It's an example of a state trying to provide restorative justice through marijuana law. But in many states, governments have failed to deliver on their promises of providing restorative justice and achieving some measure of social equity through the weed industry. So who gets to profit from legalizing weed? Can restorative justice and legalization coexist? That's what we're exploring today on the 1A Podcast, where we get to the heart of the story. I'm Jen White. We've got a lot to get into after the break. Stay with us. Let's get right into the conversation with Amanda Chicago-Lewis. She's an investigative reporter covering the marijuana industry, and she joins us from New York. Amanda, thanks for coming back. Great to be here. Also with us from Michigan is Barton Morris. He's the principal attorney at the Cannabis Legal Group. Barton, great to have you back. Thank you. Good morning. And with us from Massachusetts is Shalene Title. She's an attorney and founder of the nonpartisan think tank Parabola Center. She's also the author of Fair and Square, How to Effectively Incorporate Social Equity into Cannabis Laws and Regulations. Shalene, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. Amanda, how are things in the legal cannabis industry right now? Uh, you know, I think one of the greatest uh things people don't understand about legal cannabis is that it is actually not a very profitable business. Um, Most people think legal weed, you're going to make a lot of money. Um, Very few people are making money in legal weed. Um, And I think that is sort of the first problem when we look at restorative justice uh, and social equity issues. Um, Because the promise there is that there's going to be some kind of financial compensation to the communities that were disproportionately affected by the war on drugs, uh, black and brown communities, when uh, in reality there's not a lot of money to be made for anyone in the cannabis industry. And so the promise that uh, folks who get into the legal industry because of uh, being disproportionately affected under prohibition are going to get rich uh, in compensation is uh, ends up being kind of a false promise. Mm-hmm. Uh, Shalene, I want to come to you. When we think about restorative justice in this context, how is it being defined? Well, I think we look at the way that drug laws and cannabis laws in particular have been disproportionately enforced. So most people are aware that black and brown people have faced devastating consequences Uh, when they've used and sold marijuana at the same rates as white people. So when we are enacting legal cannabis laws, it's intuitively very unfair to say you communities can continue to deal with that while everyone else gets to make the profit. So when we look at restorative justice or social equity, we're acknowledging that harm that took place and then asking what policies can we put in place with legal cannabis to make sure that we're repairing those harms. Can you give us just a couple of examples of those policies? Sure. So what we've seen in states so far generally fall into three categories. One is 
repairing the criminal justice harms. So that's things like expungements and sealing records and pardons like President Biden uh, just uh, did himself and encouraged governors to do last year. Another is economic justice. So that's things like workforce development programs and benefits and assistance to owners of small cannabis businesses who come from harmed communities. And finally, there's the reinvestment of tax revenue. So like Amanda said, this is not a very profitable business currently. But at the same time, in the long term and aggregate, um, we have a lot of money and a lot of tax revenues. Here in Massachusetts, we're at about $4 billion in total. So how do we reinvest those revenues back into the communities that were harmed? Now, Barton, le- legislators in Detroit tried to incorporate a social equity provision in their recreational marijuana ordinance, but it was held up in court for several years. Walk us through what happened. The city of Detroit being the uh, largest <clears throat> city in the state and having the opportunity to benefit its majority-minority um, residents sought to use the recreational laws or ordinances in order to benefit the, their their residents uh, and minorities and social equity applicants. It was a very laudable effort. And what they did is, is try to uh, create an ordinance that said, okay, like if you've been a legacy uh, Detroiter, if you've been living here for a long time, we're going to give you a first, uh, the first and best opportunity. Well, uh, that was litigated, of course, by a lot of people that have been waiting for adult use, uh, recreational marijuana opportunities, uh, the ones that have, been, have had medical opportunities you know, the, uh, uh, for a long time. And, and it was found to be unconstitutional. It's precisely what she said. It's, uh, it's, it's difficult when there's all these pre-existing laws that are seeking to, um, to um, provide fairness uh, and constitutional uh, guarantees. And so um, it, it became difficult. It was, lit- it was something that was litigated for quite some time. And then they had to go back to the drawing board. And unfortunately, that took an entire additional year. So... Uh, they came back and 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 reformulated it and and provided I think a bit more uh, fair fair uh, circumstance so that they were they were successful. They just held their first round of licensing. They delivered uh, a number of um, awarded applications, and I think just yesterday Detroit finally, after many many years, uh, had their first sale of recreational adult use marijuana. But what happened to the social equity applicants in Detroit? How have they fared since the licensing process resumed? You know, not well. I mean, a lot of people uh, in the city of Detroit and social ec- equity applicants in general believed that this was going to be a great opportunity for them to succeed. And But ultimately, only a handful of them were able to do so. And the reason being is that uh, most of those opportunities were being kind of, uh, um, they were already taken by the existing medical licensees. So there's only a, a certain uh, number of properties that were eligible for a retail license. And those properties had, for the most part, been already gobbled up by medical licensees. Most of those are not social equity applicants. And so when the city says, well, we want to deliver social equity applicants and, and minorities more opportunities, they, there was actually practically very little opportunity. And so a lot of people went and spent a lot of money um, uh, on application fees and, and lawyers and, and professionals and consultants only to uh, really not find the opportunities that they thought in the city of Detroit promised that they would find. Let's go to our inbox. Here's a message we got from TJ in Massachusetts. 
I am a social equity candidate, part of the first cohort here in Massachusetts. I am a former applicant for a dispensary and worked with one of the largest dispensaries here. The equity system is just not there, even in our own state where we praise our equity program and what it's done. And uh, the bottom line is that it's it's not where it should be and things are not looking like they're going to get better. Shalene, you helped write the original recreational marijuana bill in Massachusetts. What social equity provisions were included in that bill? Well, the bill essentially charged the regulators uh, with figuring out how to promote and encourage social equity applicants and how to define them as well. And I think this is a common trend. Um, You see regulators and very often people of color are the ones who are charged with um, repairing, you know, a hundred years of harm with very little resources. So I think it's really important that we hold governments accountable. And at the same time, we allow some grace and some time because each state is improving over the last one and learning over the last one. And yet, TJ is absolutely right. None of the states are where they should be. So in Massachusetts, what specific social equity provisions were included in that bill you worked on? So what the regulators put in place was um, starting with an education program, a licensing waiver. Um, We saw, I was one of the initial regulators, we saw that we were not getting the results that we wanted. And so we kept adding um, more benefits. And the most recent one that just went into place last year is that equity applicants are the only ones who can access delivery for the first three years. So they're not competing with bigger businesses. Um, And they also have funding. And they also have um, required local approval. That was the biggest problem we found in the first few years, was that you needed both state and city-level approval. But the cities were not working with social equity applicants. So the law just changed this year so that now the cities have to. So what would you say to TJ, who doesn't sound particularly optimistic? Well, I would say, A, he's right. And I would say, B, um, one of the most productive things I've found you can do as someone who's had experience in a state like Massachusetts, um, who was the first one to do it, is to talk about your experience, just like he's doing Because then we see states like New York and New Jersey, and now as federal law is being discussed, um, we have the opportunity to now use that data to make improvements. Amanda, I would love to hear from you about this sort of uh, tension between what's happening at the state level, um, what may be happening at the city level, and, and how how those different provisions or the rules municipalities put in place, how they can bump up against each other and make it harder for people who are trying to enter the industry. Yeah, I mean, look, everything Shalene is saying is true. Um, And I think it's important to keep in mind that, um, you know, the way that we are legalizing cannabis for the most part in most places involves a city government or a state government or a municipal government picking and choosing who gets a license to sell or grow um, or manufacture cannabis products. There's not a lot of other businesses that operate like that. Um, Part of the reason it's happening like this is because it remains federally illegal. 
Um, but, you know, local and state governments are also finding it profitable for them <laughs> to uh, charge, you know, not only, you know, get these taxes revenue from cannabis businesses, but these regulatory fees um, to uh, incentivize businesses to participate in legal weed. So anytime the government decides here's which businesses are allowed and here's which businesses are not allowed, um, while there are already all of these illicit businesses operating, right, because we know that, you know, cannabis is the most commonly used illicit drug, um, you know, we know that the illicit market has been efficiently running for a very long time, in all of the places where there's legal weed, legal weed is competing with illegal weed, okay? And so the government says, okay, these five people are allowed to sell legal weed. Guess what? There's already a hundred people who are selling illegal weed at a third of the price. So that is the context in which social equity is happening. So if I'm you know, a social equity applicant, uh, like TJ, the person who called in, and I'm being told, hey, this is your opportunity for historical justice, you know, to repay the fact that maybe you went to uh, prison for cannabis possession or something like this. Um, and then it's like, you have to start this business. You spend all this money to start this business. You put all of this effort into getting this license. Then all of a sudden you're in a situation where the person down the street is not paying the taxes you're paying, is not paying the regulatory fees, and is charging way less for the weed, that means customers are going to go to them, no one's going to go to you, and the context in which this is happening means like there's not a lot of money in this for you, even though that's kind of what you were promised. So with this context, Barton and Shalene, I'd love to hear from you what you think state legislators should keep in mind when they're creating laws to, to try to benefit social equity applicants. Barton? Well, I think that it's difficult for them, uh, but they can look to other states who are trying it. I know that Michigan has done that as well. Uh, and they have to really, I think, probably figure out a way to get some money into the hands of social equity applicants who can really then use that in order to uh, successfully run a business that is federally illegal. And that's, I think, where we find a lot of difficulty uh, because of the significant tax penalties that a cannabis business has to, to endure uh, and, and these municipal issues as well. Uh, it just beca- it becomes a, a function of how much money do they have. That's the significant barrier that they have to overcome. And if there's not money there, then uh, it's just going to be really, really difficult for a social equity applicant, particularly a minority, to, to be able to be successful. And then I think, particularly in Michigan here, I think is one of the biggest issues, is the state government has, has not imposed upon the, the, the municipalities the requirement of having social equity provisions. The municipalities here in Michigan don't have to do that. The state does, and the applicants do, and the, even though there's no specific requirement as to how they're supposed to, to do it, but there's no requirement that municipalities do. So we, as we talked about, Detroit has, right, because they are affirmatively looking to, to use the marijuana law there in order to, uh, to provide those opportunities. But other smaller cities, they have no obligation to do so, and, and I'd say most of them are not doing so. Shalene, your thoughts, what do you think state legislators should keep in mind when they are creating these laws and they want to benefit social equity applicants? Well, the advice I always give state legislators is that 
they are generally being lobbied by people who want profits to start as soon as possible. So they're being told you need to start sales immediately so companies can start making revenue. But in fact, what we have to worry about is protecting people. And I think if you approach it by starting with doing your homework and saying, how do we protect patients? How do we protect consumers, small growers, mom and pop shops? How do we make sure they have funding? And then most importantly, how do we make sure we have expungement programs and other um, reparative justice that actually works? That whole process, it will take years to put in place. And so if you know that going in and you design a law that has a more um, ethical order of operations rather than just starting with profits, I think you would do better than any of the other states that have gone so far. Amanda, restorative justice isn't just about ownership. How else is it taking shape? Yeah, uh, as Shaleen was saying earlier, um, expunging and clearing uh, criminal records uh, is, I mean, I think probably the most effective uh, arm of, of restorative justice around cannabis. Uh, and then tax revenues from the cannabis industry um, is being are being reinvested in community reinvestment programs toward uh, maybe job training programs uh, aimed at communities of color or, um, you know, other sorts of things like that. Barton, as you look at the landscape right now of cannabis law, uh, restorative justice, and, and how it all fits together. How much are you seeing this it, it's, where it's not working as, as a function of the, the idea that the laws are actually evolving faster than state bureaucracies can handle? Well, <clears throat> you know, I s- certainly appreciate why we're always talking about restorative justice is because the the, cannab- uh, the prohibition of cannabis for the past 50 years has caused so much disproportional impact that uh, it, it just makes sense to try to do something about it. Uh, and, it and, and now we're seeing it more, there's a lot of support for it. Unfortunately, there's also a lot of support and probably more support for what people believe is the potential um, profit that people can make and businesses can make uh, in the cannabis industry. And, regard- and I agree that that it's certainly been overinflated. There, like a lot of people think that there's this, this cash cow, and it hasn't proven that that hasn't proven to be the case. Um, but it still doesn't stop people from thinking that. And so a lot of people invest a lot of money and and then push legislators, legislators and lobby legislators to 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 get their stores open and to permit them to operate in particular facilities. And that ends up becoming more important to these legislators who are being lobbied. Uh, uh, as opposed to the restorative justice um, principles that r- really should have more um, um, opportunities for success, but I don't think you see the people lobbying for. There's nobody lobbying for that, right? Like that, there's a lot of support for it, and I don't think anybody disagrees that that should be happening. But you don't see a lot of people giving money to um, lobbyists in order to lobby the state and uh, legislators and the municipal government, you know, to support um, social equity applicants. Amanda, your thoughts? Uh, yeah, I mean, I think this is just inherently a very challenging situation. Um, legislating fairness in business is very difficult. And this is something we've seen America mess up 
again and again and again. This is not the first time that a policy has been promised uh, that is meant to increase property ownership or business ownership among black and brown people specifically. Uh, and pretty much every time it happens, it's a promise and it doesn't work out very well. We'll be back with more from you and our guests in just a moment. And remember to join us for future conversations. Download the 1A Vox Pop app and leave us a voicemail. Now let's get back to our discussion of recreational marijuana and restorative justice. One of you emailed this, I am a bud tender in Illinois. We're probably the least equitable state with nearly all licenses being held by billion-dollar corporations. I could not disagree more that there is not profit in cannabis. My store alone brings in about $100,000 a day. Amanda, is, is Illinois a special case? Well, uh, I would say two things. Uh, the amount of money that the store brings in every day is needs to be compared with the amount of money that's being spent by the store on uh, taxes and uh, regulatory fees and uh, the person who wrote in's salary uh, and you know the weed they have to buy to stock the shelves. So you know revenue is not necessarily the same thing as profit. Um, Illinois is not a special case, um, but I understand that um, you know cannabis politics are so local, it can often be difficult to understand the national trends. Uh, Illinois, like many of the places that uh, has you know announced a social equity program with great fanfare, um, has ended up with a very delayed social equity program because of lawsuits. Um, you know, Barton was mentioning lawsuits earlier in Michigan. Um, we've seen these lawsuits happen basically everywhere. And this goes back to uh, what I was saying earlier about, you know, the government picking and choosing who gets to participate in legal weed. I think any time that happens, there's kind of grounds for another business to be like, hey, I don't think your system for who gets to do this is fair. I think you should have chosen me. Uh, and then that just delays everything. And, uh, yeah. Well, well, some states, such as Oklahoma, have chosen not to prioritize social equity in their legal weed industry. How easy is it to open a dispensary there? Uh, so Oklahoma is a really interesting case, right? So uh, Oklahoma does not explicitly have a social equity program, but the barriers to entry are very low. Um, the amount of money you need to spend to get into the industry is uh, relatively low, and there's not this sort of hard cap on licenses. And it's possible that that might actually make it uh, easier for uh, black and brown business owners. Um, uh, you know, speaking to what you know, Barton was describing earlier in Michigan, so before Michigan uh, implemented its current laws, when it had more of a gray market where uh, the sale of cannabis was not super regulated, um, there were actually a lot more black dispensary owners in Detroit uh, than there are now because anyone could kind of jump in and, and start a business. But once you start seeing these bureaucratic hurdles um, from zoning to, uh, you know, licensing to, um, you know, regulations, it becomes much more complicated. And then you see uh, people who historically have power and money um, succeed uh, and people who don't have that money and power are, are at a disadvantage. Well, let's turn back to New York. One customer at the Housing Works Cannabis Company Dispensary had this to say. This is the social equity we look for and hope for, but, you know, we all still need other components, so we hope not to still be squeezed out in other manners, i.e. some people don't have the capital, some people don't have the uh, properties. We also got this message from Dan in Virginia. 
In Virginia, we don't have recreational dispensaries yet. However, we do have some medical dispensaries, and it did not take long for them to be quickly monopolized by one or two corporations who bought up the limited licenses to sell medical marijuana. And really, outside of the convenience of just being able to walk into a store, there's really no reason to patronize those places. I think that overall is going to be one of the biggest things holding back the promise of racial equity and righting past wrongs is that we've allowed uh, this system to come into place where just a few corporations are able to buy up all the competition and the limited licenses and take over the space. We also got this email from Deirdre in New York who says the New York law is supposed to give those who were previously incarcerated for cannabis first priority at licenses if they previously owned a business. Really? How many black and brown folks do you know who've owned a business, period, and also been convicted of a felony? Shalene, I'd love your response to Deirdre's email there. Well, it's... It is always going to be difficult to balance these factors, right? But I think that um, there is a population that is, you know, people who are, are business owners. And then there are also people who want to get into the ancillary, meaning like uh, where you don't touch the cannabis plant, but you can own other types of businesses. Um, there's people who want to be workers rather than owners. And there's people who don't want to be in cannabis at all, right? But they've still been disproportionately harmed and they should be benefits of, of tax revenue or, or other, um, other sorts of equity programs. So there's a lot of different ways that this can look. Um, but I would like to go back to the earlier point about corporations monopolizing the industry. That's what Parabola Center primarily works on. An interesting thing is that federal legalization is coming. Um, we don't know when, but it's inevitable at this point. And that will be a complete reset of all of this, depending on how federal legalization is designed and what sorts of anti-monopoly, pro-competition rules we put into place. But Barton, I do want to circle back to the messages we heard and, and the concerns about access to capital and property and experience in running a business. What what role do those play in weed dispensary ownership? You know, with the new um, legalization of marijuana, most municipal and state officials believe that it's necessary to have uh, some um, experience in running a business. And they believe that, <clears throat> I'm not sure if it's right or wrong, but they think that that's like really necessary. Uh, even minimum capitalization requirements that we see uh, and, and property ownership, which again are all barriers to entry and is contradictory to the other ideal of also granting opportunities and priority opportunities to those that have experienced convictions in their history that have kept them from accomplishing those very same things. And then we it's complicated by the fact that with federal uh, prohibition that has uh, eliminated the opportunity for institutional lending. So uh, somebody can't go to a bank and get a loan and buy a building and then uh, participate uh, in the industry. They have to go, if they don't have the money, they have to get it from private investors and private equity. And that becomes a very difficult thing to do. So uh, there is a balance and uh, between 
having some business experience, but also uh, simply just trying to give opportunities uh, for social equity uh, applicants. And those really are contradictory. And I think that that's what you're, what you're, what you're getting at there is that uh, those are, while they're contradictory, so therefore it really makes a, a smaller market for those that can qualify for both. Amanda, as you've said, the legal marijuana industry, which was once regarded as the, the quote, green rush, has seen a slump in sales since the pandemic started. How is that affecting the push for including restorative justice in marijuana legislation? Um, I actually think that during the pandemic, sales of cannabis went up uh, because I think people were at home uh, very bored and trying to uh, smoke weed to pass the time. Uh, that's, um, I, you know, I think sales varied from state to state, but I think the the bigger issue is the competition with the illicit market. Um, and, uh, you know, we just had our first uh, legal sales in New York and uh, it's like great for them. And there are thousands of illegal storefronts uh, selling cannabis all over New York City. Um, and it's going to be quite difficult um, to put that toothpaste back in the tube. Um, uh, you know, I moved to New York from Los Angeles over the course of the last year and a half, and it's been really <laughs> difficult and upsetting to watch New York make some of the same mistakes. Um, in Los Angeles, you know, illicit dispensaries still outnumber legal dispensaries uh, and are undercutting them on price. And uh, now that uh, we see illegal weed being sold all over New York City, um, it's you know very difficult to imagine a situation where under the limited license and uh, you know zoning intensive method of, of legal weed that uh, is happening here, it's difficult to imagine how legal weed could eclipse illegal weed. So since there is a track record of how some of these these mistakes can play out or missteps and, and how they can end up not benefiting social equity applicants, Amanda, why do you think the same missteps get repeated? I mean, I think it's just really complicated policy. Uh, and I think, you know, people who agree with each other in principle could uh, think that different policies um, are the best way forward. Um, you know, even just speaking to uh, what Shalene was saying earlier in terms of federal legalization and what that's going to look like. I mean, first of all, why have we not seen progress on federal legalization? It's both really complicated and not quite as important as, you know, inflation or, um, you know, Ukraine or other things that are sort of top of mind for people these days. Um, but so when we're looking at federal legalization, say you care about um, restorative justice, uh, does that mean that you want to prioritize consumers or does that mean you want to prioritize businesses? Because those could mean really different things. If you want to make sure the cannabis industry um, allows a lot of opportunity for black and brown business owners, you're going to pursue different policies uh, from if you want to make sure that uh, you know, the average pot smoker is not going to be arrested as soon as possible. So basically, if we legalized federally overnight with pretty much, you know, no restrictions, which I'm, I'm pretty sure is not what Shalene has been uh, advocating in her work, um, you know, that will, you know, prevent the half to three quarters of a million people who are being arrested for cannabis possession, disproportionately black and brown people. Um, those arrests, you know, would stop happening presumably pretty quickly. But if you want to make sure that black and brown business owners have a chance to like gain a foothold, we're going to try and 
keep some of these, uh, you know, state markets where you're not allowed to bring cannabis across state lines. Um, we're going to try and keep those programs, the equity programs that do exist, going for a little longer so that those people can establish their businesses before potentially being you know, gobbled up by larger businesses or allowing the full floodgates of um, you know, open money to come into this. Because, you know, I mean, Amazon really wants cannabis to be legalized because they'll have, you know, a pretty quick lock on delivering it right to your door. And, and that would obviously put a lot of the um, equity businesses that uh, people have tried to make happen in some of these places that do exist. Some of them, you know, are thriving, but it's a f- small number. Those would get wiped out really, really quickly in that situation. Shalene, we have under a minute left here, but what are you advocating for at the federal level? Well, I think we can have a... Uh, framework that promotes small businesses and stopping arrests uh, without going right to the two or three big businesses, including Amazon and Big Tobacco, which is also lobbying for federal legalization, um, without putting them in charge using the seven years of data that we now have at the state level. Any last thoughts, Amanda? What are you watching for next? Uh, Yeah, I mean, I think New York has really, um, you know, done its best And at the same time, it is not enough. And so essentially, um, if if there's a a place that can not limit the number of licenses that are being given out and allow for more of a a free market with a low barrier to entry, but also keep, um, you know, public health in mind, uh, I would love to see that. That's Amanda Chicago-Lewis. She's an investigative reporter covering the marijuana industry. Also with us today, Barton Morris, the principal attorney at the Cannabis Legal Group, and Shalene Title, an attorney and founder of the nonpartisan think tank Parabola Center. She's also the author of Fair and Square, How to Effectively Incorporate Social Equity into Cannabis Laws and Regulations. Shalene, Barton, Amanda, thanks for joining us. Remember, we have a text club. It's the fastest way to connect with us. Find out how to sign up under the Talk to 1A tab at the1a.org. Today's producer was Lauren Hamilton. This program comes to you from WAMU, part of American University in Washington, distributed by NPR. I'm Jen White. Thanks for listening. Hope you can join us for the News Roundup tomorrow. We'll talk more soon. This is 1A.